Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mollett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube. Uh, you can just search for our channel there and uh, subscribe, so that way you get the uh, updates when the videos come out. Um, you can also find us on iTunes. Uh, just go ahead and search for Logical Belief, and you can subscribe to that feed there. Uh, both the audio and the video can be found at the website uh, just on the top menu there just click on podcast um, if you want to send me a word of encouragement or you have a question that you want to have answered on the air uh, you can drop me an email at jason at logicalbelief.org uh, just be aware however that you are permitting me to read it on the air if you send me a an email alrighty so uh, today uh, we are going to continue, uh, kind of pick up where we left off last week uh, in talking about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, last week I had um, discussed at the um, during the podcast about um, a book published by the uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, entitled Life Everlasting. They had published it before um, 1975. And in there, uh, there was a uh, a prophecy and a prediction about when the end of the sixth age of the human history would come to an end in, in the fall of 1975. And so what I've done is I have just um, today posted an article on the website, which um, gives links to um, the entire book uh, of Life Everlasting. So if you want to grab that, uh, it's a good uh, resource there to to use. Uh, the link's right there in the article um, to the, the entire PDF of that book. And also I've got a screenshot here of page 29 where the prophecy is, is, uh, is on that page. So uh, go ahead and grab that if you do have um, any Jehovah's Witnesses that you uh, know um, of and that you want to share the gospel with. Go ahead and and show them that. Um, I also had uh, somebody reach out to me uh, from the uh, from the website and uh, gave me some uh, some uh, some additional information. Uh, is, he has uh, the individual his name was Tony I believe yeah it's Tony and he has a YouTube uh, channel uh, let me find it here real quick so that I can uh, can do a shout out for him here um, his YouTube channel is uh, called for Jesus for truth it's the number four Jesus the number four and then the word truth it's all all one word there um, no spaces. And uh, so go ahead and see if you can f uh, find his channel. I think he has his entire presentation. I haven't watched it yet, but he has his entire presentation. Uh, but he gave me some additional information. And uh, one of his, um, one of the things that he pointed out, uh, I thought was just, it was really good. So I, I wanted to kind of uh, just bring that up here um, on this episode. And uh, what he brought up was that um, most Jehovah's Witnesses 
uh, will carry a book around called What Does the Bible Really Teach? And um, uh, from my experience, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses will carry a, a backpack or something with a lot of material in it, uh, usually um, a Bible, a Greek lexicon, and uh, even this book and some of their, I think they're called Awake magazines. And um, so most of them will have this book with them. What does the Bible really teach? Um, I actually went to their website um, after Tony had given me this information. I went to the website and I looked and they have the entire book on their website. And what Tony pointed out on page 38 was exactly what um, what he uh, he pointed out. So I do have the entire book downloaded uh, and in PDF format linked within the article. So if you want to grab that, uh, that's uh, that's a resource there for you. Um, so on page 38 of the book, what does the Bible really teach? Um, I'm going to pop it up here on my screen so you can you can see it. Uh, this is the uh, the graphic that is on page 38. And it uh, shows a picture here of uh, Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And uh, there's a caption up above that says, um, At his baptism, uh, Jesus became the Messiah or Christ. Now this is a teaching of the uh, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society that Jesus did become a uh, the Messiah at his baptism. So what you can do is take uh, ask your Jehovah's Witness to turn to Luke 2.11 uh, in their New World Translation and ask them to read it. And it says, For today there was born to you in David's city a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And simply ask them, how do they resolve this conflict that the Scripture says that Jesus was actually born um, the Christ? Um, the the term Christ is is the Greek word Christos, uh, which um, uh, the Hebrew word Mishaik or for for Messiah. Um, the translators of the Septuagint uh, would translate uh, that term into Christos, which is uh, what the New Testament writers used. So when we use the term Jesus Christ, uh, Christ is not Jesus's last name. No, it is uh, simply saying that he is the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. So the, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, would teach that Jesus became the Messiah at his baptism. But we can see here in Luke 2.11 that Jesus was born as the Messiah, as the Christ. So that's a, that's a great question to ask them. Ask them to resolve that particular issue. Alrighty. Um, I uh, also want to uh, do a, a shout out to a new contributor to the uh, website. Um, his name is uh, Wojciech. It's actually how you pronounce his name. And um, he just published a, uh, an article to the website uh, called um, Are You a Muslim? And uh, it's a great article. Uh, There's a very powerful argument in it. And um, I already had uh, somebody actually contact me and say that they already used the article. They already sent it to somebody that was reading the Quran. So, so uh, that's another uh, great resource. 
Uh, we'll maybe at some point uh, cover um, Islam on this podcast. I am no expert at all in Islam, so I'll have to do a lot more research. I've only ever had the opportunity to actually witness to one Muslim. Um, and, you know, basically uh, what I did with him was I just uh, I gave him the gospel. You know, I, I just I gave him God's law. I did I did point out a few things. I asked him um, if uh, if Allah was uh, was perfect in his justice, and so I I asked him since he said he was. I asked him um, how he resolves the problem with with uh, Allah. You know, just you know if you've obviously broken God's law, so how is it that Allah can just you know, arbitrarily dismiss your case without, I mean, if he's perfectly just, which you said he was, you know, how can he just dismiss your case and allow you into heaven? Um, is there a way that you can resolve that? And so that was a question I had asked him, but I just gave him the gospel and, um, and, uh, we had a, we had a great conversation. So, um, the, the one thing that, you know, I want to make sure that we understand is that while it is our duty as Christians to uh, to look at other religions, look at ways that we can reach out to these people and ways that we can demonstrate the truthfulness of the Christian worldview and the and the truthfulness of our faith. Um, you know, it's the gospel that is the power of God into salvation. So, you know, when when you don't know how to maybe deal specifically with a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon or um, an atheist or a Muslim or, you know, whatever worldview you're encountering, a Hindu, um, you know, just give them the gospel. Uh, I mean, the one thing I, I would say is that even with all this stuff I'm going through, like with Jehovah's Witness or if you um, watch my podcast on presuppositional apologetics, is whatever apologetic method that you're using or whatever that you're pointing out, always, always include the gospel. The gospel, by necessity, must be included within your apologetic and with your uh, evangelistic um, uh, attempts. So, alrighty. Well, I'm getting down uh, a little bit on a rabbit trail here, but uh, so uh, another article that I wanted to uh, talk about today was. Uh, it's one I wrote back in a, a little while ago, and it is uh, entitled, Does Colossians 1 Teach That Jesus is God? Now, I'm going to also do one here. I'm working on one right now on John 1, and I want to try to break down John 1 so you can deal with it uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses. Um and I'm going to try to make it as understandable as possible. And since I'm no Greek scholar, what I do is I try to break it down and make it as simple um, and come up with arguments that both I understand, and if I can understand it, then you can understand it without even being a Greek scholar also. So what I wanted to do was uh, one of another very common text uh, that is attacked by Arians, Jehovah's Witness types, is Colossians chapter 1 and um, uh, 
specifically uh, verse uh, 15. But um, I'll go ahead and read the entire uh, section here. I'm going to go ahead and transition um, over here so you guys can see the screen here. I have Colossians 1, uh, beginning at verse 12 up here on the screen. I'm just going to read it all the way down here to verse 20. It says, uh, Paul here is writing to the Colossian church here, and he says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The term firstborn right there in verse 15 is the much contended term. Uh, but we'll keep on going here. The firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's a key term right there. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what I want to do is want to kind of want to kind of work our way through this passage here, but we want to uh, uh, pay special attention here to uh, the term firstborn here in uh, verse uh, 15. Uh, the term firstborn is translated uh, from the Greek word uh, prototokos. Um, and its Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament is behor. And uh, the term behor in the Old Testament uh, was always translated by the translators of the Greek Septuagint, uh, which was a, if you're not familiar with that, was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures about 200 years before the time of Christ. Um, and so every time the translators of the Septuagint uh, translated the term behor in the Hebrew, they used the Greek term prototokos. Um, if you've also done any sort of research on uh, any of the writers of the New Testament and how they quoted the Old Testament, most of the time the writers of the New Testament quoted the Septuagint. They did not quote directly from the, um, the Hebrew Scriptures. So, um, so here in... Uh, verses 15 and 18, we have the term prototokos. We also see it repeated here in um, in verse 18. It refers to him as the firstborn from the dead. Uh, the prototokos uh, from the dead. So when we look at the semantic domain, we look at the usage of the term prototokos in the Old Testament we will see uh, that it has generally, uh, or it has two, uh, two uses. Let me 
scroll down here a little bit. Um, the most often um, in the Old Testament, the term prototokos or bechor is uh, has the meaning and carries the meaning of a temporal order um, in the uh, birth of uh, sons. So the temporal ordering in the birth of of sons. So the you know the firstborn son, literally, you know, just like it even sounds. I'll give you several examples in Genesis uh, forty-one verse fifty-one. <clears throat> uh, Joseph here uh, it says Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. So um, it was his firstborn son. Genesis twenty-seven thirty-two. Uh, his father Isaac said to him, "Who are you?" Uh, this is when um, Jacob was actually coming to uh, Isaac and was was um, trying to act like, uh, pretend he was Esau. Um, he answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. And then in First Chronicles 2.13, um, it says, Jesse fathered Eliab, his firstborn. Uh, Abinadab the second and Shimea the third. So obviously... Um, the term prototokos here is the temporal order of the birth of Jesse's sons. So that is the primary usage of the term prototokos. However, there is a second usage of it in the Old Testament. The firstborn, for example, um, uh, among the Jews and the Hebrews was was always the the one who carried on the family. He had the position of authority. He was the one who inherited um, uh, everything. And so the term prototokos also carries the meaning, not just the temporal order of sons, but also carries uh, the meaning of uh, a, a positional type uh, meaning or a title of preeminence and authority, uh, kind of like the term um, uh, the term king, for example, or the term president is a positional term. So in the same way the term firstborn, prototokos, um, carries the meaning of position. And we can see that in three texts in the Old Testament. We can see, for example, in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, it says, with weeping they shall come, with pleas of mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Now, here's the interesting thing. Ephraim, uh, Joseph had two sons, um, Manasseh and Ephraim. And as we just read in Jer uh, Genesis uh, 41 verse 51, that... Um, Manasseh was the firstborn, not Ephraim. But we see here that God gives Ephraim the title of firstborn, a positional term, one of preeminence, one of authority um, in Jeremiah 31, verse 9. In Exodus uh, 4, verse 22, it says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is uh, God, he's speaking to uh, Moses telling him what he shall tell Pharaoh and he says then you shall say to Pharaoh thus says the Lord Israel is my firstborn now Israel was the name that God had given to Jacob 
And as we also read in Genesis twenty-seven thirty-two, that Esau was Isaac's firstborn, not Jacob. But notice here that God, again, is giving Jacob, giving Israel, the title of the firstborn. He's the prototokos. He's the one with, he's the preeminent one. He's the one with the authorities, the inheriting one, the one who inherits all things. We also see in Psalm 89, verse 27, which is a uh, messianic psalm. It's a psalm that has uh, both uh, in its connotation references and application to both David and Jesus himself. For example, in Psalm 89, if you hear, I'm going to switch it the screen here. If you look here in verse uh, 4 of that chapter, you'll see, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So we can see that this psalm has, has uh, messianic Jesus application. And if we go down here to verse 27, which is the one that we're going to look at here, and it says, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all kings of the earth. So if you... If you look at the context, if you read the whole psalm, you see that this has both um, application to both David, uh, but also to Jesus. And the New Testament writers um, uh, referred to Psalm 89 in several places uh, as a messianic psalm. So, um, so the one thing we have to look at here. So if it is referring to David in Psalm 89, verse 27, if we look in first Chronicles two thirteen, we see that Eliab was actually the firstborn of Jesse, not David. David, in fact, was the lastborn of Jesse's sons. So we can see here in Psalms 89, verse 27, if it is even just only referring to David, it's also obviously a positional term. It is not the in referring to uh, in Psalm 89. It says and I will make him the firstborn. So um, God's not saying here that he's going to uh, make make David um, and make him the firstborn in the temporal order in which uh, Jesse's sons were born. No, he's giving him the position of the firstborn. And so in the same way, what Paul is doing here in Colossians 115 is. He's not saying that Jesus is the first created. Um, in fact, he's saying that Jesus is the preeminent one. He has the preeminent position over all of creation. And he goes on to say things like um, in verse, uh, the end of verse 18, he says that in everything he might be preeminent. Notice once again, the the uh, the preeminent uh, usage of the term prototokos um, validated here by the use of even the term preeminent in the text itself. But also notice in verse 18. Um, so let's go back. If if the Arians are correct that the term prototokos means first created in verse 18, it doesn't make any sense. It says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning he is the firstborn from the dead. He's the first created from the dead. 
No, he's the first born from the dead. He is the one who has preeminence. He's the first resurrected. He's the one who has preeminence in the resurrection. He is the one who uh, inherits all things. Um, we are raised uh, with Christ, and he is the one who has preeminence. So um, let's scroll down here. Let's see here. So we can see here that the term here in Colossians must be a positional term and not um, not meaning uh, first created. If we also look in, let's see here, um, Jesus as the God-man has been given, given authority over all things. We see that in John 17 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says, he says, uh, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. Notice once again the authoritative position Jesus has. Um, in Matthew 28, verse 18, uh, in the Great Commission, just prior to it, Jesus said, um, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Once again, he's he's been given this position of authority. And uh, in Hebrews 1, 2, we see that um, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. So notice how throughout the New Testament, Jesus has been given authority. He has been glorified. He has inherited all things, all terms that are part of the positional use of prototokos. Now, one of the arguments that I've heard Arians espouse is that they will say that the term prototokos in the Greek is in what's called the genitive. Now, uh, uh, the term prototokos ends in an omicron sigma, and it's a noun, uh, which would mean that it is in the genitive, which means that it is um, an adjectival form. It uh, functions like an adjective. Um, now, the Greek genitive has what's called multiple different modifying substan substantives. You have like the possessive case. You have the descriptive case. Now, what the, and, and multiple others, and I can't think of all of them off, off the top of my head, but what the Arian will say is he will say that the and and often the genitive is possessive and, and they are correct about that but whether it's possessive whether it's descriptive is dependent upon the context um, and so they will say that for example it's it's um, it's possessive so in other words he is the firstborn of creation. So he is the first part of the creation. So he is a part of the creation. Another example of the genitive in the possessive case, for example, would be in Matthew 26, verse 51. In there, uh, for example, the term um, uh, servant of the high priest you notice that servant is possessive 
or the term high priest is possessive of ser servant of the high priest. So the genitive there would be in the possessive case. So what the the Aryan will say is that he is the firstborn of creation. Well, the problem is, is that he is uh, forcing the genitive case of possessive uh, based upon his presupposition that Jesus is a first created being of creation. But here's the thing. The genitive can also be descriptive. So um, instead of it being possessive, the genitive is really, in, in the term prototokos here in uh, Colossians chapter 1, it's, it's descriptive in the same way, uh, for example, in Second uh, Corinthians 6 verse 2, it, it's, uh, we see the genitive um, in the day of salvation. So notice how uh, the term day here is not possessive, is not uh, possessive of sal or salvation is not possessive of the term day. Um, instead, it's descriptive. So the term day here, um, it's the what sort of day is it? It's the day of salvation. So in the same way, in Colossians 1.15 here, Jesus is the prototokos of creation. Uh, it's describing what he is prototokos of. It's descriptive. Um, it would be, it'd be, um, it'd be, you could use the, another example you could kind of use is like the king, um, the king of England. Uh, you have the term king, and then what is he a king of? So in that way, the genitive would be descriptive um, of, um, it would be described by what his kingdom is. And in the same way here, when it uses the term prototokos in the positional form, um, it's saying that what Jesus is prototokos of, he's prototokos of creation. He is the firstborn of creation. And so, it's it's quite clear here that there, there's really no scriptural uh, foundation for rendering and understanding the term prototokos here um, as first created and the first created of creation, uh, making the gen genitive in the possessive. Um, the genitive here is very clearly in the descriptive, and it's even substantiated by Old Testament texts which use the term prototokos in a positional uh, way. So um, another uh, very strong argument for the understanding here that um, this passage is, is actually teaching the deity of Christ is if you look here in Isaiah, if you go to Isaiah 44 verse uh, 22, I'm sorry, uh, 44 verse 24. It says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. So if you notice here, I don't know if you guys can see this, um, in the uh, verse pop-up that comes up here, you'll see that the term Lord here in Isaiah 44, 24 is in all caps. 
What that means is that this is translated from the term uh, from the tetragrammaton, the Yod He Vav He, what we know as Yahweh. Um, so I am Yahweh who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. In this verse, Yahweh is declaring that He alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth all by Himself. But Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says that Jesus is the one who created heaven and earth. So either Jesus is the Yahweh of Isaiah 44, 24, or Yahweh had help from Jesus in creation. And if Jesus is a lesser created being, then Yahweh didn't create all by himself, as it says in Isaiah 44, verse 24. So the case is really closed. Um, Jesus is God. He's creator of all things. Colossians 1 uh, verses uh, 12 through 20 is a complete substantiation of that. And there is no justification at all for rendering this text as uh, the term prototokos here as first created. Um, so, alrighty. Well, that is um, all I have uh, today. Um, you can go ahead and you can find that article on the website if you are interested. If you have any Jehovah's Witnesses or Arians uh, try to um, uh, convince you that uh, Colossians, Paul is saying in Colossians that Jesus was a first created being, uh, you can knock that one out of the park because uh, that is not substantiated by Scripture. So um, I thank you guys for uh, uh, joining us today. I hope this was of some benefit to you, and God willing, uh, we will be back uh, with you next week. And uh, we hope to see you then, and God bless. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Through Adam's offense Condemnation came to man And so